Father, through weak, fallible human words made use of by the Holy Ghost, may we come to know your living word, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Please be seated. Psalm 63, 1 that we just read. O God, you are my God. Eagerly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a barren and dry land where there is no water. Growing up, I was taught implicitly, uh, not by anybody in particular, but just in the kind of evangelical atmosphere in which I was raised, that if you didn't do your devotion in the morning for 15 minutes, then God was somehow sort of distant from you throughout the day. Uh, so, you know, maybe instead of being right next to you when you would walk into a room, he would sort of be on the other side of the room. And that's kind of a silly, that's kind of a silly way to think about how God is present with us. Um, and today, uh, in our readings, we see very much how God is present with us, and it's not in a fickle way like that, where it's dependent on whether or not we have done our devotion for long enough, or whether we even did a devotion at all, but it's tied to something much more objective, much more sure, that is his very Holy Spirit. And so today in our various readings, if you piece them together and you think about the types uh, and the symbolism and the ultimate points to which they all lead, we can know very certainly that in the midst of the time when we are in a barren and dry land where there is no water, there actually are streams of living water for us. So beginning with Zechariah, which it's always a good Sunday when we're going to read from a book like Zechariah, our reading looks forward from the perspective of the author to a future day when the Lord would protect even the weakest of the people of Israel from foreign nations seeking to destroy them. However, for the sake of the this sermon in the context of the lessons that we read today, there are really two verses which stand out that we should focus on, verses 12.10 and then verse 13.1. And I will pour out a spirit of compassion and supplication on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that when they look on the one whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him, as one mourns for an only child and weeps bitterly over him, as one weeps over a firstborn. On that day, a fountain shall be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. In 12.10, Zechariah probably meant house of David to mean the nation Israel. In his own day, that would have made the most sense to him. However, looking at the whole testimony of Scripture, we know that the nation of Israel over time evolves from the imperfect, that is a socio-political ethnic group of people inhabiting the ancient Near East, into the perfect, that is the church. Further, the whole house of Israel finds its fulfillment in the seed of David, a singular figure discussed in Ezekiel 37, 24, my servant David shall be king over them, and they shall have, all have one shepherd. They shall follow my ordinances and be careful to observe my statutes. This is not speaking of actual David coming back and reigning over Israel, but a new David, a perfect David, Jesus, the fulfillment of the Davidic kingship. The people will weep because they've pierced him like a firstborn. And the weeping over a firstborn 
makes me immediately think of the terrible plague of deaths of the firstborn in Exodus. But the language of piercing here is an allusion to Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. These people who are weeping for piercing him aren't someone else. They're us. John Wesley, commenting on this verse, said, Every one of us, by our sins, pierced him. We are not passive observers of this. We are active participants in this depravity. Yet 13.1 provides us hope. A fountain will be opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. The fountain is the blood of Christ made available to us through the waters of baptism on account of the incarnation and death of our Lord. The house of David here is the church, and the inhabitants of of Jerusalem are those to whom the gospel is preached. The result is that those who are washed in this fountain are cleansed from sin and impurity because they're united to the one whom has been pierced. Even as far back as Zechariah, Christ's death as atonement for our sins and the application of that sacrifice in holy baptism are integral parts of the story that God is telling. In the gospel lesson, Christ asks his disciples who the crowds think he is. And I can only imagine that this is the ancient world's equivalence of reading the comments under the articles. The disciples respond to Jesus' questions by saying that some people think he's John the Baptist. Other people think he's Elijah. And still others think he's a variety of ancient prophets. In a rare moment of clarity, Peter makes the correct identification of Jesus as the Messiah of God. This is a term that would have been freighted with expectations in the Jewish mind of Jesus' day. Some of them were biblical expectations and some of them socially constructed. The Jews were being occupied by the Romans, a foreign force of Gentiles telling them what they can and can't do. And so, for example, there were a number of figures around the same time period as Jesus who identified themselves as messiahs and who promised military and political deliverance in an immediate sense from Roman occupation. In fact, this is most likely why in the reading when Peter makes his confession, Jesus tells him, don't tell anybody, because he didn't want to be conflated with those people uh, who were trying to cause a political revolution. But instead, Jesus is going to turn this commonly held view of messiahship, that is that it is one who will wreak political revolution on the oppressors on its head. Instead of casting himself as a mighty military conqueror, Jesus describes what will happen to him. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the one whom they have pierced. But it gets even worse. While in the other passages, the disciples were arguing about who gets to sit on the right hand of God, Jesus gives them an expectation that they live in a cruciform, that is a self-sacrificial manner, which subverts almost every human calculation about how one should act. If anyone to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will save it. What does it profit them if they gain the whole world, 
but lose or forfeit themselves. Studies tend to show that when someone has been abused, they become more likely to abuse someone else. In other words, hurt people hurt people. Sin is a pathology that acts very similarly. In fact, it's the root cause of those cycles of violence that exist in human relationships. As humans, we constantly see and experience the sin of others, and then we replicate that behavior in our own lives. It's a really vicious and hopeless cycle, except, except that Jesus shows us a different way. For this you have been called, 1 Peter 2.21 says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you should follow in his steps. Here, in this cruciform rhythm of self-sacrifice, Christ beckons us into the divine life, which is foolishness to the world, but really an exhibition of the power of God. But there's one problem. What Jesus says is so antithetical to our natures. Who among us can naturally do what Jesus is saying and pick up our cross and follow him and live in this cruciform manner? So how are we to access this divine life, this cruciformity in our relationships? And the answer can only really be found in our Galatians reading. Galatians is Paul's diatribe against the Judaizers. They were a faction of first-generation Christians in the church who lived in Jerusalem who would travel around to churches that Paul was planting, telling the Gentiles that while it was great that Paul planted the church, he kind of missed a step, that they needed to get circumcised and that they needed to follow the Jewish law Uh, in in the Torah. So in response to this movement, Paul, uh, sometimes very harshly, answers the question of how Jews and Gentiles should ultimately dwell together in Christ. And the central thesis of his argument is that it happens because we share a common life in our baptismal identity that transcends any kind of ethnic, gender, political, or socioeconomic boundary. While the Judaizers were trying to make dwelling together the gospel plus Judaism. But that leads to a severe dilution of the gospel because the law has no transformative or life-giving effect in the sense that it's incapable of making us righteous before God. So Paul points out that before faith came through Christ, the law imprisoned us. However, now that faith has come, we don't need a disciplinarian Through faith, all Christians are sons and daughters of God. No matter who you are, what you've done, where you're from, when you live, we all share a common heritage. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is, therefore, no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female, for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. This means that the promise that was given to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, that he would be a blessing to the nations and that all the nations of the world will be blessed through him, that belongs to us. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So it is in baptism, just as Zechariah 12 and 13 attested, and here Paul confirms that we enter into the family of God and receive the promise given to Abraham because in baptism we put on Christ, thereby receiving the forgiveness of our sins and the integration into the divine life. It's in our baptism that we know that Christ and that God is closer to us 
than we are to ourselves. As Augustine says, he's not standing on the other side of the room because you didn't do your morning devotion this morning. In today's collect, we asked for God to graft in our hearts love for his name. This love was given to us in baptism as a seed, but it's something that's kindled and that grows into this, through the sacramental life of the church. This is why we prayed for an increase in true religion. As a result of this, we produce fruits. That is the result of our participation with God. So in today's Eucharist, may your love for God increase because of what the pierced one has done for you. May you be nourished by his goodness and may you produce good works knowing that you have put on the divine life won for us by the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord of all power and might, the author and giver of all good things, graft in our hearts the love of your name, increase in us true religion, nourish us with all goodness, and bring forth in us the fruit of good works through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen.